Welcome to the CrocCast, a podcast for peace studies conversations convened by the University of Notre Dame's Croc Institute for International Peace Studies, part of the Keough School of Global Affairs. Hello and welcome to the CrocCast, peace studies conversations convened by the Croc Institute for International Peace Studies at the University of Notre Dame, part of the Keough School of Global Affairs. I'm Josefina Zavarria, Director of the Peace Accords Matrix and an Associate Professor of the Practice here at the Croc. In this episode of the CrocCast, we'll be having the first two conversations with authors of the three of our newest PAM policy briefs. The PAM policy brief provides relevant material to inform practitioners, policy, decision and peacemakers about best practices and recommendations to help them better design and implement peace accords. Our authors are faculty, students, and researchers whose work has been based on the PAM dataset and other uh, field-related scholarly publications at the Croc Institute. The briefs focus on content and process-related issues in peace agreement design, and today's authors have done a remarkable job offering novel insights about the inclusion of citizens' rights in peace processes and peace agreements. I'm very happy to say hello today to our three panelists. Joining me are Felipe Roa Clavijo. Felipe is an assistant professor in the School of Government at the Universidad de los Andes in Colombia. Welcome, Felipe. Hi, Josefina. Thank you so much for having us. a pleasure to be here in this podcast today. We also have Rebecca Guindel. She's a consultant on women's rights and local peacebuilding issues in Colombia. Thanks for being here with us again, Rebecca. Thank you, Josefina, for the invitation and what an exciting group of policy papers the Croc Institute is publishing at the moment. Thank you so much. And last but not least, we have Sally Sharif, a postdoctoral research associate at the Croc Institute, here working with us at the Pizza Courts Matrix at the University of Notre Dame. She's also together with me, the co-editor of the whole PAM policy brief series. So, Sally, thank you so much for being here. Hi, uh, thanks a lot for having me. It's great to be here. Hello. So let us get started. Let me share with our community here how we have structured the podcast. We will have Felipe sharing with us uh, great insights about the right to food. We will have Rebecca talking to us about the rights of uh, women in peace processes and peace agreement implementation. And we will have Sally with a very interesting topic, which is how do we include civil society and the citizenry after rebel groups have uh, become the government after they have won civil wars. So I'm going to ask each of our authors a series of questions so that you have the opportunity to listen to what are the main ideas that are contained in their publications. And I want to start with Felipe. Felipe, in your policy brief, you write about the inclusion of the right to food in peace agreement. Can you tell us more about what is the right to food? And I would assume so, but do we all have the right to food? Thank you, Josefina. So my, my policy brief's title is The Right to Food, an Essential Provision in Peace Accords. And it basically looks at how uh, the Colombian Peace Accord included uh, the right to food as an essential provision. And so I elaborate a little bit on why the right to food is important, how it was included in the negotiation phase, and then uh, what's the relevance for the implementation. And just to answer uh, your question, I'd like to start by saying that 
food is a human right, and it was adopted uh, in the Universal Declaration on Human Rights and then uh, addressed in several other human rights conventions. And the right to food refers to the right of everyone to adequate food, basically. And it's the fundamental right not to suffer from hunger and malnutrition. Yeah, so conflict has impacts also in lack of access to food, it impacts high food prices, and it disrupts the rural livelihoods. And it's very likely to contribute to civil unrest and the emergence of conflict as well. I think uh, the war in Ukraine at the moment is a good example of how conflict is related to food access because all what's happening in Ukraine at the moment, uh, it's affecting global food supplies of wheat, corn, and agricultural inputs. So as I was saying, the food is a, is a central concern in the context of conflict and disagreements. And in particular, just to sum up my answer to your question, Josefina, it addresses critical situations of hunger and malnutrition. It also addresses in the cases when there are refugees and forced displacement, but it also has a long-term perspective because it fosters a social and economic development and the full realization of human rights. And this is why the right to food is important in, in this context. And you ask, do we all have the right to food? Well, not, not everyone, and, and particularly those in, in conflicts, those people who are in, in the context of conflicts, their right to food is at risk permanently. And so to build peace in the long term, it's important to focus on this human right. Thank you, Felipe. Let me turn our attention now to Rebecca's brief. Rebecca, you wrote a very interesting brief together with our colleague Laurel Queen, uh, where you're discussing women's rights in countries emerging from armed conflict. And we normally think of peace processes as ending the armed conflict. But in your brief, you provide us with great insights about how to integrate women's rights already from the process of negotiation. Can you share with us some of those ideas? That's right, Josefina. So with Laurel Quinn, we write, or our brief really talks through and discusses women's rights um, in the Colombian Peace Accord. Not only how women's rights has been included in the text of the Peace Accord, but also how the court has impacted women's rights in Colombia. The steps taken so far, we've looked at a little bit around recommendations from what we can see from the Colombian experience for other peace processes, for example, but also the brief looks at how to continue supporting the process in Colombia to achieve women's rights. And so our brief is called Achieving Women's Rights Through Peace Accord Implementation Lessons from Colombia. And your question is really interesting because I think that a gender lens or a women's rights perspective on peace processes really lets us consider how far peace processes go to ending conflict and what these different visions of peace mean for different communities, for example, in Colombia and for different people in Colombia. So we can see that the negotiations in Colombia, the signing of the peace accord was so important in ending violence in ending armed conflict between actors in Colombia. But that's often just the first step in actually transforming 
conflicts and violences. And I think that violence from women's perspective and women's experiences in Colombia is so important to that understanding of how conflict transformation really is working in Colombia and what lessons learned for other peace agreements. So, for instance, at the moment in the Colombian experience, we see a lot of issues around women human rights defenders, continued violence for rural women, black and indigenous women and victims of the conflict. And so whilst the peace accord did end, you know, decades of armed conflict between um, the government and between um, the FARC, we also see how the women's rights agenda is so much more than just around the accord and how the accord can be this platform for achieving women's rights. I think what was interesting, uh, specifically in Colombia, was how women's movements and how women's organisations has always related, and for you know years before the accord was signed, has related women's rights to peace and the importance of women being at the heart of negotiation, implementation of the peace accord and of peace programmes. Thank you, Rebecca. That's already a wonderful way of inviting our readers to to really go to our website, uh, download this brief and start looking much deeper into women's issues and how we find in Colombia a very good example of their inclusion in peace accords. Sally, your your topic is is kind of different. You write together with Madhav Joshi, uh, who's also one of our colleagues at the Peace Accords Matrix, about the impact that uh, citizens' contributions can have in peace processes when rebels win the civil wars. So not when we're, like we were talking before, how do we include either rights, uh, the rights to food or women's rights in peace negotiations, but what happens when actually the illegal armed organizations win those wars? So what is the impact? And tell us a little bit about the relevance of your findings for understanding peace agreements. Yes, in the brief that I write with Madhav Joshi, we discuss whether peace agreements alone can maintain peace um, after rebel victory. So rebel victory is a specific kind of conflict termination. And in such cases, we don't have a peace agreement right off the bat to work with. So we cannot look at the implementation of the peace agreement because there is no peace agreement. The rebels have won. However, usually when rebels win, there are parts of society, factions within the rebel group or other insurgencies that have either remained from the time of conflict or are formed right after that might oppose rebel rule. As you can imagine, rebels uh, don't have an easy time governing. And uh, the example of the Taliban in Afghanistan is illuminating. It is not that uh, rebels come to power and everything is easy. So there are certain strategies that rebels can adopt to rule. And one of them is signing a peace agreement with uh, the insurgents. Now, you might say, where does citizens' rights come into play in this process? We show in the brief that it is only when rebels take into account citizens' needs in the process of making a new country, building new institutions, building new governance strategies, that they can reduce the risk of conflict from recurring. 
So let's say if they went and the rebel incumbents just signed a peace agreement with the insurgencies without including the citizens, they will actually risk conflict recurrence. So there's a chance that the, the country will fall into what we call a conflict trap. However, if they bring in citizens in an inclusive peacemaking process and negotiate a constitution through the peace process in the form of a new peace agreement with factions of society or new insurgents that might not ha be happy about rebel incumbency, then they can stop conflict from recurring. Excellent. I'm very much hoping that there are a lot of decision makers listening to, to you right now. And to stick with this topic of negotiators and facilitators, I wonder, Felipe, if I was sitting at the negotiation table and I was one of those mediators and facilitators, is there a way that you would maybe suggest based on international experiences or maybe international legal guidelines that would make it easier for me to include the right to food in my peace uh, negotiation agenda? Uh, yes, Josefina, uh, definitely. So in, in the case of, of the right to food, FAO uh, produced in 2005 the voluntary guidelines uh, to support the progressive realization of the right to adequate food in the context of national food security. And, and this is a really important uh, tool. It's, it's not legally binded, but uh, these are voluntary guidelines for nations to adopt and implement uh, the right to food. And, and basically, uh, they provide an instrument to combat hunger and poverty and to accelerate the achievement of the SDGs. So these voluntary violence, uh, guidelines provide uh, this framework for implementing the right to food in their countries. Other countries, as some examples, have implemented uh, the right to food in the context of the peace negotiations. Amongst others, there are uh, the, negotiations in, uh, the negotiations in Afghanistan, for example, have included this right in the context of the negotiations. So have the peace negotiators in Nepal and in their agreement, the right to food was included as well. But of course, my focus and, and my attention was devoted to the peace agreement uh, in Colombia. And the, in Colombia, the right to food was included in the first chapter of the peace accord, which is the comprehensive rural reform. So in the context of, the, of a country which is affected by food insecurity, where most of the poor people live in rural areas and where there uh, is an increased inequality over, over the coming over the past decades, this right, this right to food was very appropriate to include in this context because mostly uh, those most affected by violence such as you know, farmers and rural dwellers were part were an important part of this first chapter. So first chapter was just dedicated to this important rural and structural rural reform in the country. So we see an important example of how the right to food came into the agreement as an essential element, as an essential provision to support the whole structural change that the rural country needs. Thank you. I want to move now and ask a question also to Rebecca about the Colombian case, because specifically you write about the women's rights agenda in Colombia. Rebecca, and I was wondering, how was this agenda and vision and structure 
uh, when it was integrated in the 2016 peace agreement signed between the government and the former Farkepe guerrillas. Thank you, Josefina. Well, Felipe has helped because he's actually spoken about the first point of the peace agreement. And that's actually where we can see the majority or a lot of provisions specifically for rural women. So that's really interesting how this rural chapter and the women's rights agenda match up. So looking a little bit historically about how it was achieved and how it's been structured, it's important to say that the women's movement along with international support from the beginning of the negotiation phase was adamant in the importance of having women at the table, women negotiators, but they also wanted, civil society wanted to revise the text of the accord before it was signed. So in our brief with Laurel Quinn, we talk a little bit about the subcommissions, gender subcommission, which was an important element to ensure that women's rights are not only a general implementation uh, principle within the Colombian Peace Accord, but there are specific provisions. And UN Women have tracked over 100 specific provisions. The Croc Institute has identified over 100, uh, 130. And HEPAS, which is a civil society platform, has identified 122. So we can see there there's over 100 specific provisions. Unlike rural reform, women's rights are not just in one chapter. And that's interesting because I think there's a great sort of lessons learned with the ethnic approach in the Colombian peace agreement. So the ethnic approach has got its own chapter. Women don't have their own chapter. They are throughout the whole peace agreement, throughout the six points of the peace agreement, you can see women's rights being brought into all parts of the peace accord. And that was really important. And the sub-gender subcommission was really um, key to achieving that. I'd say the other thing as far as understanding the process in Colombia is the idea of this enfoque de género, what they call enfoque de género, which is this, I'd say, gender approach, we call it in English. But what it really opens up as well in the Colombian case is questioning and understanding gender constructions as part of historic power constructions or power structures within Colombia. And what the peace agreement also does is open up questioning existing power structures and deconstructions that are looking forward for a new or a future Colombia. I think that what we do in the brief is look through how good practice and lessons learned about actually the writing of the peace accord and how that has supported achieving women's rights. So we identified two specific mechanisms that are in the peace accord, which is the special women's forum, which is made up of civil society. And then we also look through the really importance of the international companies as a group of international organisations which were written into the accord to support the implementation of women's rights in the peace agreement. Thank you, Rebecca. Yes, we actually have, you know, in, our, in this series, uh, hopefully in the next podcast, we're going to be able to speak about some of the aspects that you have highlighted in relation to you know, making very precise the provisions in the peace agreement and how that really helps for the implementation. 
So I wanted to ask you, Sally, you know, we have heard about Rebel Victory, but I know that you also research other kinds of peace processes. Can you tell us more about them, please? Sure. So the first kind of peace process that might not include citizens or citizens' rights or citizens' voices is um, a peace agreement uh, that doesn't envision fundamental changes within the country, like something that Rebecca and Felipe have already voiced about women's rights, the right to food, or other kinds of human rights in the agreement. So these kinds of agreements are usually envisioned as a power-sharing pact. They only, for instance, provide rebels, um, the new rebels, the new insurgents with a political party, or they include executive reform. So, for instance, they say that the new rebels can um, hold some uh, positions, some political positions in the government. But usually they do not include much reform in terms of in terms of changing the legislature or um, the judiciary of the uh, of the country or um, other forms of expanding citizens rights or building institutions that sustain and ensure citizens' rights in the long run. So these kinds of power sharing agreements, and um, I think I will talk about this later, but a lot of international organizations actually push for peace agreements that might only include power sharing. So what we want as the international community, we want peace. Like the moment a war breaks out in a country, whether the incumbents have won or not, for instance, the situation in Afghanistan right now, we hear news of bombings in Kabul all the time. We hear news of horrible human rights abuses in the northern part of the country. And what we want, we are invested in peace. So we might push the Taliban to sign a peace agreement with other insurgent groups, there's multiple of them in Afghanistan right now, uh, for the purpose of peace. And again, these agreements could be something like a power sharing pact that rebels can sign with the dissenters uh, behind closed doors without including citizens. So technically, usually these uh, do not include forums or um, discussions with uh, civil society or um, just understanding what the country needs moving forward. They usually uh, completely squash voices of the population. And uh, it's only a manner of bringing the elites together behind closed doors. Sometimes there's a representative from the UN or for some, uh, from some other international organization in the room to oversee this process, but it really does not include citizens' rights. Um, what we show in the brief, the brief is based on a paper that uh, Madhav Joshin I have worked on. So what we show is that these kind of peace agreements actually have increased risk of a renewed civil war. Usually when war recurs after these kind of peace agreements are signed, usually if the war comes back in bigger dimensions in like massive form than it did before. So we sort of caution against those kind of peace processes and explain that including uh, civil society and citizens' voices in the peace process is really important if rebels want to stop civil wars from recurring. Thank you, Sally. So tell me something in a nutshell. Can there be a peace process without the inclusion of civil society? 
Yes. And like I said, there mostly is. And again, these are peace processes that look like power sharing pacts. They are signed behind closed doors. Uh, we all know that uh, the Colombian peace process took about four years. It included victims of the conflict. It included multiple representative, uh, representatives of different sections of society, um, indigenous rights, Afro-Colombians rights, women's rights, etc. This is really an exception. This is not something that happens all around the world. And mostly when peace agreements are signed, it is not like this. They are usually, it doesn't take them four years to negotiate an accord and uh, they do not include civil society. And like I said, as we show in this brief, uh, when they don't, when they are signed as as, as power sharing pacts behind closed doors, they are not effective peace agreements. They do not work. They do not stop the war from recurring. Thank you. You know, we still have some time. So I just want to ask each one of you like a a final question. I would like to invite you, at least first, Felipe and Rebecca, to focus on the challenges of having the inclusion of these types of rights in peace negotiations to integrate or how to integrate civil society and human rights in in the agendas. And Felipe, I wanted to start with you again and ask you, what are the challenges that we can anticipate that peace negotiators are going to face or will face when they include the right to food as a provision in peace accords? I think uh, there are two main challenges that peace negotiators will will face in the context of of the negotiations and implementations of of the peace peace accords. One first level is a conceptual challenge. When there are different stakeholders at the table, there are different visions about food. Civil society and different groups of civil society, as Sally was saying, have different visions from the government or from the private sector about how food uh, provision should look like. Some people want food sovereignty, for example, which is giving priority to domestic agriculture. Uh, Some other stakeholders will want more uh, we would like to rely on international trade for food access and food provisioning. And these perspectives are very challenging to address when there are such different visions at the negotiating table. And so that's one first challenge, uh, which is uh, initially a, a conceptual one. And what I think the right to food does is it provides common ground for negotiators. Because there are different perspectives, different visions, uh, different interests at the table. But the right to food speaks about the basic right to food. So that's a good starting point and it provides common ground. A second challenge that I see is a practical one. And in in practical terms, there are emergency situations. These emergency situations, actual people and communities in acute food insecurity because of conflict, because of lack of state presence, because of poor road infrastructure, because of many different reasons. And peace negotiators should acknowledge uh, these situations and act urgently to address these situations of of hunger, malnutrition, and acute food insecurity. That's something that uh, needs to be addressed and that peace negotiators should know that they will be facing in the context of, of peace uh, negotiations. There are trade-offs here in terms of what should be addressed urgently, but without losing sight on the long-term conditions of peace building. But 
I'd just like to close, Josefina, thanking you again for, for this invitation and just inviting and encouraging peace negotiators to include the right to food in, in peace agreements in these situations, particularly when there are conflicts and problems in the rural areas of the countries which are under these negotiations. Thank you, Felipe. That sounds that sounds like a great invitation for negotiators. And I wonder, Rebecca, if what are the challenges that you also anticipate when we're including women's rights provisions in an accord and later we're trying to implement them? And this question of yours, Josefina, kind of almost brings me back as well in a circle just to suggest about how an accord is this first step. It's an opening, it's an invitation, it shows will really to address, and in the case of Colombia, to address root causes as well of the conflict. And in the experience of Colombia, I think it's important to maintain that dynamic through focusing on implementation. So whilst the Colombian Accord has opened these opportunities for progressing on women's rights through gender mainstreaming and participation of women in the Accord, it still continues to be a challenge for the full realization of women's rights in Colombia. And this is perhaps where our recommendations and where our focus around what the international community and international support can do for situations like this. What does international support look like as far as implementing these specific women's rights provisions in an accord? And I think two areas that we focus on really first is around capacity building and understanding that post-conflict or post-accord, these areas of um, achieving women's rights is happening in an area or in a context of a fragile state, perhaps, of a state that doesn't have local networks can, that can also support um, this gender mainstreaming. And so the first thing is really about how we support capacity building and the technical capacity building for governments to be able to implement these women's rights provisions. And the second area that we also highlight with Laurel in this brief is how to the international community can support women's organisations that are on the ground for them to support this implementation. And so those are the two kind of areas that I can maybe finish off with, just saying how what an achievement the Colombian Accord has been as far as conflict or parties to a conflict, ensuring women's participation, but also the support that the international community can provide, not only during the negotiation phase, but importantly in the implementation phase to ensure that this dynamic of implementation, to ensure that local women's groups are being supported to create that knowledge and capacity as well as the institutional infrastructure for achieving women's rights. Thank you, Rebecca. That sounds, that sounds really great. Um, how we can see this continuum between the design uh, and the writing of the peace accord in its implementation and how it should be seen as a whole. And, and you were uh, precisely talking about the international community. And I want to ask Sally exactly about any mechanisms that you can share with our community here for international organizations and actors to promote or pressure new rebel governments to include civil society in, in peace processes? How can we support that inclusion? 
That's a great question, Josefina. As you probably know, international actors are quick to either uh, put sanctions on new rebel regimes or um, arms embargoes. And these are the two mechanisms that usually international actors try to pressure uh, new rebel incumbents. As you probably remember, when the Taliban um, came to power in Afghanistan, the United States was quick to put the government under a complete financial embargo and uh, stop the movement of arms to the country. Now, we show that sanctions alone and arms embargoes alone do not matter for whether civil war comes back or not. So we might be under this illusion that as that as strong actors, we are doing something for the country. When we slap rebel governments with sanctions or arms embargoes, but we actually show that that doesn't matter for peace. What really matters is making these sanctions or these measures conditional on inclusion of citizens and peace processes. So sanctions alone do not work. What really works is encouraging rebel governments to include civil society and citizens' voices in the process of building peace, in the process of bringing the country back from what I previously called a conflict trap, instead of just asking them to end the conflict. So instead of making sanctions conditional on ending the conflict, which rebel incumbents might do by signing these power-sharing agreements that I talked about previously, we show that um, that these forms of international action, these forms of actions on the part of international community do not necessarily work to bring about peace. What really works is um, pressuring rebel incumbents to include uh, civil society voices, especially in the form of writing new constitutions that take into account the views of the citizenry. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, Sally, for your last words, all your briefs really point towards the importance of including civil society, including human rights, women's rights, including really those that are supposed to be the main beneficiaries of a peace accord, of any sort of peace agreement, to include them already in the negotiations, to think about their their well-being from the very beginning and make sure that those uh, peace accords and those peace negotiations are not only focusing on on the main uh, leaders of the parties, but they are really having victims and having women and having the rural population really at the center of their efforts. So I thank you very much for, for also that ethical commitment and for the great papers that you have shared with all of us. Thank you for accompanying us today in the Croc cast. And I mean, I feel that I have already learned so much more about, about your policy papers. To our listening community, I want to encourage you to really visit our website and download the whole PAM policy brief series. You can find it under peaceaccords.nd.edu slash policy. Thank you. You've been listening to the Croc cast. Peace Studies Conversations convened by the University of Notre Dame's Kroc Institute for International Peace Studies, part of the Keough School of Global Affairs. You can find all episodes of the Crockcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher, Spotify, and online at croc.nd.edu slash podcast. You can also rate and review our podcast, which will help more people find our show. For more updates, stories, and videos from the Kroc Institute, 
Follow us online on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Thanks for listening.